You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officer went down through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Jesus said, Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bear the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from, all, from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflowed all its banks through the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests being the Ark of the Covenant, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nations finished passing over the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word to us that you are a God of power, of salvation, of deliverance. And so we pray now that you would cause our faith to rise and our eyes to see the risen Lord Jesus and even this story of Joshua 3. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. I'm so glad that you are here. Oh, we have a Laura Elementary night. So if you have a name tag already on, you're a first through third grader and want to head out and talk about this crossing of the Jordan, uh, we will miss you guys and see you after the service. Um, Well, it is a great time of year. I think even our kids can feel it right now. It's a, it's a busy time of year, but it's a good time of year of recognizing graduates, of going to parties for you students or you teachers, of finishing finals or grading them. If, even if you have a job, but now you're in adulthood and you have a job that is completely removed from school life, uh, the beginning of a true summer vacation even, you don't really have that anymore. I think we all look forward to this time of perhaps slower and more relaxed times of summer, of more often like sitting outside in the evening and sipping cold drinks of Memorial Day and July 4th holidays and even vacations. Uh, My family is going to start the minivan tomorrow morning and we're going to point our car in the direction of Florida. Uh, We'll spend a week with Marcy's family there and then six days of driving on either side of being in that swampy state. Uh, But we're going to be gone for the next two following Sundays, and as we've announced, we're so excited for Jordan to preach the next four Sundays, uh, getting his most consistent preaching reps of four weeks in a row. It's a big deal for him as we grow in our excitement uh, to, Lord willing, send him out to plant a church in just over a little over a year from now. But times of rest, times of vacation, of just resting are needed and good. And I'm really looking forward to many days of no tasks no expectations in Florida, and even if you, even if we don't leave town, it's good and needed for us to rest. And so much of this book of Joshua is about God's people finally arriving in a place of rest, but it takes a while. It really takes a long time for them to get to a place of rest. Today in chapter three is really just the first of three chapters in just the crossing of the mighty Jordan River. Chapters 3, chapters 4, chapters 5, it's all about the crossing of the river. And then we get to Jericho and the sin and the battles and the difficulty until finally at the end of the book, God's people arrive as his people in the place of his rest, in God's place. And so today, chapter 3, along with next week and the week following of chapter 4 and chapter 5, is just one massive high point in the history of Israel. Later psalmists will reflect on this moment that you just heard Cedric read about. They re- reflect on this moment so often, right alongside the crossing of the Red Sea, which we'll see like as a, as a mirror image of this crossing of the Jordan. This crossing of the Jordan is like a part two of the part one of the crossing of the Red Sea. Both moments are just huge high point moments in the history and in the national imagination of the people of Israel. So again, tonight as we get into this, I want, to, I want us to, by the time we've finished this chapter, to be reminded of something very similar to the first two weeks of our time together in the book of John. Joshua, that the very near presence and the very certain promises of God will lead the people of God to boldly follow him. So the near presence and the certain promises of God will lead his people to boldly follow him. So we're going to try to understand that reality by working our way through three headings tonight. That of what the people are doing with God. That the people prepare, they receive, and they obey God. And so, 
In verse 1, as we begin here, the people prepare. In verse 1, we find that the people are still at Shittim, the same place that we left them at the beginning of chapter 2, where they had sent out the spies to go into Jericho. And they leave from there, but again, they're still over on the east side of the river, outside of the borders of the land of promise, the land that over 500 years ago, God had promised to Abraham that one day his descendants would live with him in, almost in a way that they hadn't lived with him in his presence since the very beginning, since the Garden of Eden, that God dwells with his people in peace and security. So they are looking forward to this day. Now, I imagine tonight my kids are going to sleep fairly lightly. Tomorrow is summer vacation. Do you remember this time when you were a kid, the night before you leave for a summer vacation? And we, we still do this, perhaps into adulthood, on the night before, like a big test or a huge presentation that you have at work, waking up lots and lots of times in the middle of the night, your brain won't let itself turn itself completely off. You like wake up in the middle of the night, making sure that you haven't slept through some alarm or something. But can you imagine the night before this morning? They've been waiting 500 years, generation after generation after generation after generation, and now it is the night before. This generation, who were all but children, or maybe not even yet born when God had led them out of Egypt. This generation, whose parents and grandparents had all died off in the wilderness of 40 years of wandering. Now, this generation is about to receive the promises that their parents and their grandparents and their great-great-great-great-grandparents had hoped and had prayed for through generations of wandering and generations of slavery. And yet, there is an immediate problem. They come to a river. And there is a reason why rivers often make natural borders of many countries or states. So many of the borders between Brazil and Paraguay and Argentina and Uruguay are rivers. Like if you just look at the map of South America, especially in that central south part, it's just all rivers. Oklahoma and Texas are separated by the Red River. The Rio Grande, south of us, separates Mexico from the United States. And people who live on the east side of Albuquerque presumptuously think that the Rio Grande separates them from the rest of civilization. That it's not a body of water flowing through the middle of our town, but it is an invisible force field. And even though it takes the same exact amount of time to get from north of town in Paseo to the middle of town in I-40, there's no river, uh, the, no imaginary force field flowing east and west that breaks that up, like there is north and south that breaks up the east-west parts of our town. But I digress. So... In the same way that we people in Albuquerque come to a river and even subconsciously recognize it as a border, these people come to the banks of the Jordan. And the size and the history of the Jordan is actually very similar to the size and the history of the Rio Grande in our town. Now, I've never been to Israel. Some of you have. But I've seen like lots of pictures of modern-day Israel, like people uh, going to the Jordan or even getting baptized in the Jordan. And it looks a lot like this. I can't see who's back there clicking, but can you give us this next slide? Uh, somewhere. Oh, I had it. Maybe I didn't get it in there. Do we have any pictures? No pictures. Let me tell you about it. It looks a lot like uh, the Rio Grande today. In some places, what I was going to show you uh, was like some people kayaking. Uh, but then on, in dry times, there's just like cows standing in the middle, like up to just the middle of their legs. It's like very similarly to the Rio Grande and definitely summers past, like maybe two or three summers ago, 
people were just walking across. You remember this? Uh, There's huge just dry patches through the middle of the river because they've gotten so low. And the reason the Rio Grande and the Jordan today in Israel get so low is because there are so many dams um, throughout the river and so many farmers are pulling and drawing water for irrigation and for agriculture very similarly to the way our river is. This is the way it looks in Israel today. And yet, uh, this is not the way it was. We know that of the Jordan from thousands of years ago that it would have been at least half a mile wide. In many places, almost a full mile wide. And surrounding its banks would have been uh, almost like a swampland that was almost impossible to, to traverse. Trees, bushes, and in flood seasons, which the author of Joshua 3 is very, makes very clear, it is flood season. It is harvest time. Uh, the, the, the river is outside of its normal banks. This river, in this time especially, would move, mostly because of gravity and the intensity of the decline that is moving down toward the Dead Sea. And so, like in later times, if you ever have a kid's uh, children's Bible or something, and you see where in this river, the Jordan River, John the Baptist is almost, almost in like a serene pool baptizing Jesus, you know, up to their waist, uh, this would not have been. Now, undoubtedly, John the Baptist could have found like maybe some inlet or something that was a little calmer, but this was a raging, massive river. And this is the river that the people need to cross. And what's worse... Again, it's springtime. It's early April, and so the river is raging. It is moving. Now, we know the story, and if you don't know the story, you just heard Cedric read the whole chapter. You just heard it read. But what happens in chapter 3 is just expert sports storytelling. You'll notice that it isn't until verse 13, way down in verse 13, that Joshua tells the people what's going to happen. He just tells them, all right, it's go time. It's, it's the morning of the night before, the months before. They know subconsciously there's a gigantic river bordering us to the promised land. And so the morning of, maybe they think that Joshua like knows of some bridge that they don't know about, but they'll trust him. Maybe they think like the, the Corps of Engineers are waiting there to build like a pontoon bridge for the nation. Maybe more likely they're going to have like 10 or 15 people at a time use the fords that were mentioned at the end of chapter 2. This will take days, if not weeks, to get 10 or 15 people across at a time, leaving them vulnerable and exposed. But however it's going to happen, the people are up for it. The officers, they go throughout the entire camp and they tell them, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God being carried, carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Again, no instructions on how we're crossing the river. Just whenever you see the Ark of the Covenant move, it's time to follow it. Now, we spent some time thinking about the Ark of the Covenant when we went through the book of Exodus a few years ago, especially in Exodus 25 and in the book of Leviticus, but you all, of course, know exactly what the Ark of the Covenant looks like now that Indiana Jones has found it, and it is a box. That's not, he hasn't found it. It's just in a warehouse somewhere now, but it's a box made of acacia wood. It's like three feet by uh, nine inches long by two feet, four inches wide, so three feet by two feet, and this box is overlaid with gold. There are golden rings on either side that then golden poles are inserted through so that it can be moved and carried without touching it. And unlike the way that it's portrayed in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, there is nothing inherently magical 
There is nothing inherently spiritual or powerful about this box. It was never used as a weapon. And in fact, unlike the movie, God's presence actually does not live inside of it. Certainly not weird and scary spirits or ghosts living inside of it. But inside this box are the Ten Commandments. Along with the Ten Commandments are Aaron's priestly staff and then a pot of manna. God's presence cannot be contained in a box. God's presence cannot even be contained in a big tent or even a temple. God's presence is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Rather, what this is then, the ark acts kind of like the king's footstool. When the king sits on his throne and is in judgment over his people, the ark is like an earthly connection for how and where God will closely and nearly sit, will closely and nearly reign and rule over his people as their judge and as their king. It's, you might think of it as kind of like a, it's an airlock. It is a place of heavenly and earthly overlap, is this ark. And so when the officers tell the, the people that the priests will carry out the ark in front of them, they're to follow it. And yet, they're to stay about uh, 2,000 cubits away. This is about a, like a thousand yards, maybe half a mile. They're supposed to stay half a mile behind the Ark of the Covenant, preparing and teaching the people two things here. That, one, if they, that they are to keep their distance from the purifyingly good holiness of God's presence. Just as we considered throughout Exodus and Leviticus, the presence of God is like the heat and the purity of the sun. It is life-giving and it is good, but it is dangerous. Nearness to God is dangerous for an impure and a sinful humanity, and that does not make God bad. It is because he is so good that he gives warnings to his people so that the radiance of his glory actually does not consume them, but like perhaps like enriched plutonium or something. Something that has such life-giving power also has extraordinarily life-taking power for those who are not prepared, for those who are not mediated, for those who are not ready. And so, staying this half mile behind them, or staying behind the, the ark, they're learning to understand distance between a pure and holy God. And yet, secondly, they're also learning and being prepared in that it is God who goes ahead of his people, just like he did in the pillar of fire in the wilderness. Now here, God leads his people ahead of them, and all they are to do is follow them, or follow him. And what a sweet and reassuring truth that the people are told about following the Lord at the end of verse 4, where Joshua tells the people, do not come near it, do not come near the ark, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. When ways are new and uncertain, when we do not know the way, God knows. Your way, O oh Lord, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. God leads from the front rather than like pushing and shoving from behind. It is always the grace and the kindness and the power of God ahead that brings about the faithful obedience of his people, the vision of God ahead, like urging his people, come on, further up further in, let's go, follow me, rather than the, the pushing, the shoving, the prodding, the you can do it, try harder from behind God, without having any vision of him. But it is the leading out ahead God that, that prompts the, the obedience and the following of his people. However, always with them, always with them in the ark is the reminder of the law. 
The law is in their presence. This is a reminder of God's character and of God's expectations for his people. The ongoing reminder that despite this high point of national obedience, that they are still a sinful people, a people who are incapable of perfectly keeping this law. They are a people in need of mercy and of grace and of forgiveness. And this lid of the ark, sometimes called the the mercy seat, the lid of propitiation, or where we get our English word for of atonement, the lid of covering. This is the place where blood is to be regularly sprinkled over the lid for the cleansing of sin and for the absorption and complete satisfaction of God's good and just judgment against humanity's absolute commitment to live our lives outside of God's good intention for them and for his world. The presence of God in and amongst the people is simultaneously good news and bad news. It all depends on if you are prepared and if you are ready for the ways in which God has given to his people to prepare themselves, to be ready, to be cleansed. And so in light of all this, Joshua tells the people in verse 5, consecrate yourself. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you, just like when their fathers consecrated themselves for God's arrival at the mountain in Exodus 19. This generation is to consecrate themselves for God's arrival. This word just means that they are to prepare themselves. They are to entirely devote themselves to the worship of God. We don't know everything that this consecration involved, what it meant for them to consecrate themselves, but at the very least, it included washing their clothes, probably in the Jordan, and it meant abstaining from marital relations for three days. This was a time of utter and devoted worship unto the Lord. It is a time of preparation because God is coming to do wonders amongst them. He is coming to lead his people. He is coming to deliver his people, and they must be prepared. They must be ready for his arrival. And so, now that they're prepared, they are ready to hear the commands of God, to receive his deliverance. So we've seen the people prepare. Now in verses 7 through 13, let's see the people receive. The people receive, in verse 8, for the first time, the priests with the ark are now to come to the brink of the Jordan, and then they're just to stand still in it. Now, if we're reading for the first time, we'd think, what in the world? If you just read verse 8 for the first time without knowing where this story is going, you'd be thinking, what, so they and the ark, they're just going to walk into the river, and they and the ark will just be gone then, huh? Like washed away. The lid, the box, the heavy golden box, all of it's just going to immediately sink down to the bottom of the river and then away the priests go. Hope they are good swimmers. But before we find out what's going to happen, before there is any resolution where, where we know that they and the ark are going to be all right, Joshua, or the narrator, just gives us a big time out in verse 9. We read this, and then Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here. And listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Hivites, and the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. And you're thinking, into the Jordan? Like to the bottom of the river? Now this isn't just about solving an immediate dilemma of how to cross a river. This isn't just a question about geography. This is a question about God's faithfulness, 
about his power and his ability to save his people and to deliver on his promises. Again, as I briefly mentioned from chapter one, and as we'll spend more time on the conquest of Canaan as we go, this is difficult. All this stuff is difficult for our modern ears to hear and to receive about all of these driving out of all of these people who are already living in Canaan. But to these Israelite ears, this is sweet relief. Sweet relief for what God is about to do, that they will have a land to finally, after 500 years, they will finally have a land to dwell in peace, where they will not have to fight continual battles for survival. They will finally have a land to plant gardens, to raise livestock, for, their, for themselves and for their children and for their grandchildren, a land to live with God, a new garden of Eden. And so as this water, as this water crossing acts as the bookend to their time of uncertain wilderness wandering that began in the first water crossing of the Red Sea, this time of transience, this time of uncertainty, this time of wandering is coming to the close. It started here out of Egypt and now it is finishing. Finally, this time is gone. Time of settled peace is coming. And all the priests have to do, and here's the resolution, all the priests have to do and the people following them is just to walk into the water. Verse 13, when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord and the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Now again, this is flood time. Now the Rio Grande ain't what it once was today. Now you can see like how huge the Bosque is. That's what it used to be like pre the 70s. But I read, and just but still, even in this time, I read just this week that 17 people this week have been rescued out of the Rio Grande in just Corrales alone this week. The, the river's really moving this year. Can you imagine today, like if we walked out of here and we went and parked our cars over on Paseo or on Central, and can you imagine just like walking into the river? Just walking in. Like you would be taken out pretty quickly. Even in the Rio Grande as it is today, not what it once was 50 or 60 years ago. But now, today, imagine getting like three or four of your friends and getting like one of the biggest coolers that's made a gigantic ice chest and filling it full of ice and drinks. And four of you are carrying with all the handles and now you're just to walk into the river. But it's all right. There's a man that you trust. And the man who speaks with God and the man who speaks for God says that when you walk into the river, the water will stop. The river will stop so that you can just walk across. God will be the one doing the stopping. God will be the one doing the saving. God will be the one doing the delivering. The people have received this word of salvation. They are not on the other side of the river yet, but maybe, maybe they have memorized Exodus 15, Moses' song, what Kyle read at the beginning of our service, sometimes called the Song of the Sea, after Israel had come through the Red Sea. Maybe they had this memorized where they say, or in saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Maybe they also had memorized, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Talking about the Red Sea. 
The floods stood up in a heap. The same language here from Joshua 3. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you, O Lord, you blew your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Answer, no one. No one is like Yahweh, the God of gods, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of heaven and earth, the God of light and darkness, the God of fire and water, the God of chaos and of judgment water. But this God can use that same water of judgment and chaos. He can turn the chaos into order. He can turn the judgment into salvation. And all the people must do is trust him. And they do. Like I said in Joshua 1, this book is a pretty optimistic book. The people here on the banks of the Jordan, there's no grumbling, there's no questioning, just like their fathers did on the shores of the Red Sea. When they got to the shores of the Red Sea, they were ready to kill Moses. Like the day after they got out of Egypt, they're ready to lose everything on these promises. They don't believe Moses or God at all. But here, the people have prepared. Here, the people have received God's word. And now, we see, in light of all that, the people actually obey. I'm just going to read verses 13 through 17 again here. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now just imagine yourself again on the banks of the Rio Grande and the Bosque. They were dipped in the brink of the water, and again, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout this time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now, don't ask me how God made the river stop. Many commentators suggest a major landslide, which wouldn't be unexpected in this time, this landslide way up at this town of Zarethan. And in that sense, we can say that God miraculously works through his creation here, not necessarily outside of his creation. Or if God can speak the entire universe into existence with a word, he can, with a word, I assure you, stop a river. This may mean massive flooding upstream, and who knows how God makes all of this work hydraulically. But it's not the concern of the narrator how and what, the specifics of this stopping. And so if it's not the concern, the how and the what of the narrator, it's not mine either. Now Jordan is going to pick up the story as the people finally cross in the next two weeks. They are going to memorialize this crossing, and then they will even meet the angel of the Lord on the other side of the river. But here's the emphasis. Here's what the concern of the narrator is in chapter 3. And we cannot miss the order of this. Here's what happens. The river stops after the priests step in. Now, I dare say, all of us would feel much better about walking across the Rio Grande with a giant golden box on our shoulders if the river was like it was like two or three summers ago, when there's like dry patches of dirt 
and even if there is water that we have to go through, it's moving very slowly and comfortably like over our, our ankles. But these guys must obey. They must trust the Lord in faith before God brings about his miraculous work. How often are we just the opposite? We read something like James 1-2, where James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And you think, no, I'll count it all joy after God has brought me through these trials of various kinds. Now, a faithful response through trial and difficulty is not someone who laughs through loss, that there actually is genuine difficulty, sadness, and loss, but in joy with a settled hope in the ultimate good. The believer just walks into the water of trial and suffering believing and knowing that God will bring good. Or when we read something like Ephesians 4, 32, we read something like, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And you read that and you think, yeah, Paul doesn't understand how difficult or annoying this person is. You might be thinking, yeah, but my wife, my husband is so frustrating when they are like this or when they do that. You cannot expect me to be kind, to be tenderhearted, to forgive. But a growing and maturing marriage, one that is characterized by faith in God's promises, is one characterized by a husband and a wife trying to outdo each other in making the first move, of swallowing pride, of stepping into the water and saying, I'm sorry. It's been said that a way to mark growth in a marriage is by just decreasing the amount of time between conflict and then that first apology, the first move of tenderness, of humility. And those shortening gaps are evidence of a husband and a wife, of friends or of siblings or of roommates who are wandering out into the water in faith that God will miraculously provide, that God will miraculously deliver his people in peace. When we read something like Philippians 4, where Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But we think, standing on this side of the river, I'm not sure that God will bring peace. I'm not sure that he can bring peace. I'm not sure that he wants to bring peace. Now, anxiety is so difficult. It's so complicated. It's so nuanced, even sometimes biologically, biological and chemical. But sometimes I think we just like to stay anxious. It leaves us with a self-centered responsibility to figure it out or to dwell into the reality that my life is particularly or uniquely difficult, so I must figure it out, or I must remain in a place that I'll never figure it out, that God has led me out in this wilderness to die. But when we step into the water with initially mud all over our sandals and say, I don't understand, and I'm nervous and I'm anxious, but I trust you, well then watch what happens. Maybe not as immediately as the Jordan River. Maybe it takes a decade for the river to stop or even just to slow. But the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The water will stop. 
He is faithful to his promises. And as I move to serve and love others, even in my anxiety, I learn to enter others' problems and others' anxiety, finding counterintuitively that it is better to give than to receive as I grow in like self-forgetfulness. Or maybe most difficultly, difficultly in today's politicized fever, we read something like Romans 12, 14, to bless those who persecute you, to bless and do not curse them. Or Matthew 5, 43, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And you think on this side of the river, sure, that's a heavenly ideal, but that's not the real world. The real world requires us to fight fire with fire, compromising in all sorts of ways. God will not show up or God will not be victorious through those who are weak, forgetting that that's exactly when he shows up, that he often shows up only in times of flooding to show that there is no doubt who is the one who is strong and who is mighty to save. David says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Not fighting fire with fire, not through power, but my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Will we, as the people of God, as the people of the God, the God of heaven and earth, of light and life, of fire and water, of chaos and judgment, will we step into the water and love our enemies rather than despise them? Will we pray for our enemies rather than mock and scoff at them, either online or in our own hearts. Ultimately then, trusting in the most counterintuitive command of Jesus of them all, what we considered last month from Luke 9, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It looks like losing your life to step into a raging river. But then is when God can appear, when God can deliver, when God can save. Is he trustworthy? Is he able? Is he wise? Is he good? For us to do and to move and to act in any of these ways, we must be convinced of the promises of God that he made to Joshua in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1, verse 9? Have I not commanded you, Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do not be afraid is the most often repeated command in the entire Bible. Why? Because God has not abandoned us. Because God has not abandoned you to fend and fight for yourself. That while the people move in faith, it is actually not their faith that gets them across the water. It's the power of God that stops the water and brings dry land. He trusts, or we trust, and he saves. We take tiny steps of trust in his promises, and he delivers on his promises. He picks us up and delivers his people to glory. Because he's actually not interested in merely getting his people across the water in merely delivering from their former lives of slavery and sin to then just let them wander and provide and fend for themselves. This is Paul's point to you in Romans 8.32, where he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's done the hard part already, what makes us think and doubt that he'll just abandon us in the easy part of getting us there? The forgiveness of sins is just the starting point. 
Justification, the making right of sinners before God by Jesus' perfect life and by Jesus' perfect death is just a means to the end. The deliverance of his forgiven children into the settled family and the settled peace of God eternally. Delivered from failure and disappointment. Disappointment in the world. Disappointment with yourself. Delivered from your endless attempts to earn God's favor, to earn his acceptance and his approval, delivered from sin and death forever. If Jesus has lived and died on the cross for your sins, delivering you from slavery as your Passover lamb, that judgment might come onto those who settle deeply in faith under his blood, then don't be like Israel, this is showing us. Joshua 3 is showing us. Don't be like Israel. Those in like in, in, in Exodus 16, the day after this Red Sea passing, they are already assuming that God has immediately abandoned them, that God has led them out and done all of these miraculous works just to lead them out to die. In the Exodus 16 moments of need, of needed trust, of, needing, of needed faith, do not forget the Exodus 14 moments of deliverance. Do not forget in the darkness what you knew to be true in the light. And what is the best and truest news in the light? That Jesus is the consecrated one. He is the one who can perfectly know God, who can perfectly love God and perfectly obey God. That he is the consecrated one who would cross the river of God's judgment on our behalf. Jesus is the ark of the covenant, the meeting place of heaven and earth. Jesus is the mercy seat, the lid of atonement over the law of God, the lid, the, the lid of covering, the place where blood is sprinkled for the cleansing of sin and the absorption and the complete satisfaction of God's good and just judgment against our absolute commitment to live outside of God's intention for ourselves and for the world. That we might finally through his work and through his shed sprinkled blood live as sons and daughters of God without fear and without distance, but of nearness and of belonging. Not just God in our presence, but God within us. Not beside us, but within us. And that if Jesus has lived and died for you, then we can be confident that God will continue to provide the daily manna of contentment and of joy and of peace and of, content and of love and of faith. Not, not all at once. Not with this immediate stopped river, but enough for today. And that he will certainly get us across the next river when we get it in full. The theme of crossing this river, the water of circumstance and of uncertainty and of ultimate judgment, is one of the themes that we see throughout the Bible of already but not yet, meaning that God has already delivered his saints today in this room. God has delivered his saints across the river of judgment. But... This same river is also a river that he has not yet fully delivered his saints beyond. I've been reading and rereading and listening to lots of Tim Keller since his death on Friday. I'm going to get emotional talking about Tim Keller. It's so weird. Um, I've never met the guy. It's really strange. Uh, but I cried on Friday morning. It was unexpected. Um, I don't think that I would be a pastor today. I don't think I'd be a Christian today if it weren't for his ministry. But I was talking with another guy, one of you, 
then I don't think I or many people are going to get this emotional when other, like, fathers of that generation start to die off. It's really strange. And I think it's because of his, like, settled faith, his gentleness, his kindness, his character. In the midst of so many failing pastors, in the midst of so many failing leaders of institutions, it is his character that meant so much to us. But I was rereading or going through some of his incredible book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, this weekend. And he talks about the eternal security of God and then the fleetingness of everything else. And Keller once wrote this. He said, no family will always be there, meaning no family member is going to always be there for you. No talent will always be there. Your looks certainly won't always be there. Whatever it is you put your anchor down into, if it's circumstance, it's like putting it into the water. Everything but the promise of God is water flowing past into the streams of eternity. And so this theme of the crossing of the river, the water of circumstance and uncertainty and of ultimate judgment, this theme of crossing the Jordan has been just a massive theme in gospel hymns throughout the century, certainly in African-American spirituals, like of deep river, my home is over Jordan, of people knowing the settled deliverance of God from their sins, but still longing for a full and final deliverance, or as we often sing, and because he lives, and then one day I'll cross that river, I'll fight life's final war with pain, and then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory, and I'll know he lives. But let me leave us here tonight with the lyrics of the 1891 hymn, At the Crossing of the Jordan. This is a theme of crossing the Jordan that we all should intuitively long for. But this hymn says, When we near the river Jordan, with its rushing, swelling tide, let us put our trust in Jesus as we go. We shall hear his gentle whisper, Fear not, I am by thy side. At the crossing of the Jordan, he'll be there. Cedric was kind of beating himself up for saying, and then Jesus said earlier, this right, Jesus is the same name of Joshua, and this character, this person Joshua is prefiguring a greater Jesus who will deliver his people across the river. As we cross the river Jordan with its flood that none can check, then the Savior's guiding hand will lead us over. Though the billows roar be mighty, there is nothing we need fear. At the crossing over the Jordan, he'll be there. Tim Keller, because of the saving power of God, crossed the river on Friday morning. And it is a fate and it is a destiny for us all. That will we trust the power and the promises of God to bring us to the other side fully and finally? Or will we, will we just trust in ourselves? Will we trust in the circumstances to not sweep us along into chaos and to judgment? We can't do it. Just as sure as you cannot cross the Rio Grande, just walking across. We are nearing that dark river, which we all must cross someday. But the faithful of the Father need not fear, for the Savior there is waiting. He will safely take us o'er. At the crossing of the Jordan, he'll be there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have brought the mighty salvation of God, that you have 
gone across the river yourself, through it in chaos and in judgment on our behalf. That we were incapable. We cannot consecrate ourselves like the way that you have, like the way that you do trust and obey the Father. We are sinful, we are weak, we, are our, we, we cannot bring ourselves safely across, but you can and we trust you. Help us to, in faith, make small steps into the water that you might appear, that you might uh, be present, that you might save and deliver. And even now as we move into this next part of our service, might we remember your work? Might you might uh, even appear today in this meal for us with assurance, with power, that you might settle our hearts more comfortably and confidently in the work of Jesus on our behalf. We trust you and we look forward to the day when we, when we are all finally safe across that river in your settled peace and in your eternal family. And we long and look for that day. Might you return even soon. Return quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.